This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend one of the Great Courses series, digitized lectures from universities around the world, called From Yao to Mao, 5,000 Years of Chinese History, by Professor Kenneth Hammond at New Mexico University. As we've talked about, Chinese history is pretty important when it comes to understanding Japanese history, and with over 18 hours of lectures on the history of one of the world's oldest civilizations, this is a great place to start. Go to audibletrial.com slash japan to claim your copy. Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 88, The Quest for Immortality. This week's topic is one of those apocryphal stories that doesn't really have great historical evidence backing it up. It's the kind of topic most historians shy away from because A, there's no real good evidence to support it, and B, the specific nature of the story has a tendency to arouse some rather unpleasant nationalist sentiment in some corners. That said, it's a great story. Like so much of Japanese history, this particular tale begins in China. Specifically, it begins with a king named Ying Zheng, who came to his throne in 247 BC in a fragmented China. In theory, China had been ruled by the Zhou Dynasty, an ancient ruling family who had run the country for some 800 years. However, in practice, the Zhou had been powerless for much of the past 500 years, and instead China had broken into a series of fragmented kingdoms, which began to fight one another in a scramble for power and survival. The Zhou themselves had been casualties of the fighting. Just nine years before King Ying Zheng's birth, his father had conquered the last of the territories of the Zhou dynasty and killed their final king. In the scramble for power, some kingdoms had become more powerful than their neighbors, and others had been destroyed and absorbed. Now only seven contenders remained. Han, Zhao, Wei, Yan, Chu, Qi, and this king's own kingdom. Chin. Now, if you're getting a sense of deja vu from all of this, well, you aren't the first. The process of fragmentation followed by slow and bloody reunification was known as China's Warring States Period, or Jungle Shidai. When, 2,000 years later, Japanese chroniclers were looking for a way to describe the breakdown of the Ashikaga Shogunate and the 150 years of endemic war that followed it, they borrowed a name from Chinese history. That's why that period in Japan is also called the Warring States Period. This tendency to define current events through past history is common throughout all of humanity's past. A good recent example would be the tendency in the U.S. to refer to the 9-11 attacks as the Pearl Harbor of the 21st century or something like that, or the constant refrain in China that the 2014 stabbing attacks in the city of Kunming were China's 9-11. 
This is actually one of the reasons history is so important. People often frame their understanding of current events through their understanding of past history. The twin warring states periods in Japan and China is another example of that phenomenon. But I digress. Our focus right now is King Yingzheng of the Kingdom of Qin. After taking his throne in 246, the king first dealt with a series of internal challenges and then turned his gaze outward. Relying on both the excellently trained armies of Qin and his own reputation for ferocity, he crushed his opponents in a series of wars until, by 227 BC, he had conquered them all. Now he was not just a king, but an emperor of a unified China under a new dynasty, the Qin Dynasty. As we've discussed before, it was common in pre-modern East Asia to change your name when you'd accomplished something momentous to something more befitting your accomplishments. Few things were more momentous than becoming emperor. Thus did King Yingzheng change his name to the one history knows him by, Qin Shi Huang, or the first emperor of Qin. Unfortunately, this did not require him to have any well-choreographed fights with Jet Li, though the story of the movie Hero is at least loosely based on an episode recorded in China's first great history, The Records of the Grand Historian, by the historian Sima Qin, where an assassin named Jing Ke attempted to kill Qin Shi Huang by smuggling a dagger inside of a rolled-up map into the Imperial Palace. The assassination, however, was foiled by a doctor who distracted the assassin by throwing a medicine bag at him, not by an overwrought metaphor for modern mainland China's relationship with Taiwan. After seizing power, Qin Shi Huang became obsessed with living forever and avoiding assassins. He invested tremendous amounts of time and wealth in what was ultimately, of course, a futile search for immortality. The reasons why he did this are a matter of some debate, and are wrapped up in the ways Qin Shi Huang was depicted after his death. The traditional depiction of him was as a bloodthirsty tyrant. He brutally suppressed dissent and relied on force to obtain compliance with his decrees, and was legendarily paranoid. His palace had a labyrinth of tunnels beneath it to protect him both from assassins and evil spirits, who wouldn't be able to find him in the labyrinth to inflict their evil upon him. Famously, he brutally suppressed Confucianism, and destroyed any Confucian texts that he could get his hands on. Scholars who continued to practice Confucian philosophy were buried alive. Now, this depiction of Qin Shi Huang lends itself to a view that he was motivated in his search for immortality by a combination of madness and knowledge that after his death he would certainly be punished by heaven or whoever for his lack of righteousness. This was pretty much the definitive view of Qin Shi Huang for around 2,000 years or so. However, during the 20th century, a very different view of Qin Shi Huang began to emerge, spurred by the relative weakness of China at that point in history and a growing sense that Confucianism had failed to prepare China for the struggles of the modern world. In this view, Qin Shi Huang was an enlightened and far-seeing monarch who had done what was necessary to bring peace to China and suppress chaos. This, for example, is the view of him that is depicted in the movie Hero. Both Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong eventually embraced comparisons to Qin Shi Huang as doing what was necessary to bring peace to China. However, Mao did complain a bit about the comparison, noting that it was a bit unfair because he had killed far more scholars than Qin Shi Huang had. In this view, Qin Shi Huang's quest for immortality, if it was mentioned at all, was depicted 
As a way of showing his desire to prevent chaos, by living forever he could ensure that China never fell back into civil war. This debate about how to look at the legacy of China's first emperor rages on. For our purposes today, it's simply worth noting that we're not sure what motivated his desire to live forever. Madness, egotism, fear, desire for stability, take your pick. We do know that he was very invested in the idea, though. He mounted three separate expeditions to an island off the coast of Shandong in China, where the elixir of immortality, which would make him live forever, supposedly was hidden. Now, one of the emperor's advisors was a sorcerer named Shu Fu, and Shu volunteered to get the elixir, and he said he knew where it was. He said the elixir could be found on Mount Penglai, one of five mountain islands off the east coast of China, and a mystic utopia with palaces of gold, rice and wine bowls which never emptied, with mild winters and no diseases. Supposedly, the island was also a home to a group of legendary figures, immortals, or Taoist sages who had attained extremely long life through their mastery of the mysteries of Taoism. Among their number was supposedly a great sorcerer named An Qi Sheng, who Qin Shi Huang believed held the key to immortality. The emperor believed the sorcerer had visited him in his bedchamber after the unification of China and spoken to him for three days. Now, it's entirely possible that Qin Shi Huang had talked to somebody who claimed to be an immortal sorcerer. The emperor recalled offering this man great riches for the secret to eternal life. As to why the sorcerer refused, well, maybe he was an immortal with no need for earthly money. Maybe he was a faker who heard about the emperor's not-at-all-exaggerated propensity for executing mystics who promised eternal life and failed to deliver. Or maybe Qin Shi Huang was just crazy and imagined the whole damn thing. Anyway, all this sounds great, so where is Mount Penglai? Well, Xu Fu said, it's just off the eastern coast of Shandong, the peninsula to the south of Beijing that sticks out of China. Just give me a fleet to sail east, and I'll get the elixir of immortality for you. The emperor bought the whole idea hook, line, and sinker, and gave Xu Fu command of a large fleet with orders to sail to Mount Penglai, get the elixir, and bring it back. Now, Shu Fu's nature is a bit obscure as well. We aren't really sure what motivated him to go to Qin Shi Huang and suggest this little venture, but yet again, there are two common theories. The less cynical version is that Shu Fu was a true believer who genuinely thought he knew where the secret to immortality was, that he discovered it somehow through his own studies, and that he could get it and be rewarded beyond his wildest dreams. The far more cynical version, and the one that, to be honest, I prefer, is that Shu Fu was a brilliant huckster who figured he could take the Imperial fleet for a joyride, enjoy himself for a few years, and that by the time he came back, Qin Shi Huang would inevitably be dead, either from natural causes or because his paranoia had earned him a rather substantial host of enemies who would be more than happy to curtail the Emperor's little experiment in immortality. When the Emperor was dead, his successor would naturally want to put the whole crazy quest behind him, and Shu Fu could make his apologies for his failure and retire comfortably with the riches he would acquire from trade and exploration. Now, there aren't really great sources for either of these views. All we really have is a record that the expedition was sent. Still, it's fun to speculate about what the motives were. Now, the expedition sailed off in 219 BC and returned nine years later in 210 BC, unsurprisingly, empty-handed. 
Unfortunately, Qin Shi Huang was still alive and somewhat grumpy about the fact that he was still not immortal. And when Qin Shi Huang got grumpy, people tended to get dead. Shu Fu, either reporting honestly or thinking very fast about how to save his skin, said that his path had been blocked by a massive leviathan. I've also seen this translated as giant fish. Basically, it was a big sea monster. He would be happy to go back and get the elixir, of course, but this time he would need archers to defeat this obstacle and continue on. Qin Shi Huang agreed, gave Shu Fu his archers, and sent him on his way. And that was the last anyone ever saw of Shu Fu. Either his fleet sank during the voyage, not unlikely given how dangerous sea travel was in the ancient world, or he prudently decided not to try his luck with the Emperor twice. That very same year, Qin Shi Huang died. The cause of death? Well, ironically enough, he ingested mercury pills prescribed by court alchemists, which were supposed to make him immortal. The moral of the story being, I suppose, that the quest for immortality will inevitably do you more harm than good, and also that you really shouldn't eat mercury. Just as the first emperor feared, without him his dynasty fell apart. His chosen heir was deposed by a cabal of eunuchs who supported his younger son, and said youngest son was promptly made into a puppet of said eunuchs who promptly drove the Qin dynasty straight into the ground. It was overthrown a few years later by a peasant named Liu Bang, who established a new dynasty, the Han dynasty. So this is a great and occasionally hilarious story, but what does it have to do with Japan? Well, it all has to do with the island the Elixir of Youth was supposedly hidden on, a cluster of mountainous islands to the east of China, Sound familiar to any of you? That's right, the most common theory about where this legend of Mount Penglai came from was Japan. A lot of people think that's where Shufu ended up, again either looking for the elixir or deciding that he couldn't go back to China so he might as well stay here with several hundred miles of ocean between him and the crazy emperor. Besides, assuming he made it to Japan, he'd have an army of a few thousand of the best archers in Asia, and the locals were still basically in the Stone Age. Shufu could carve himself out a nice little kingdom and retire comfortably into a life ruling over the natives. Now here's where it gets interesting, because there is some circumstantial evidence to support this idea. Namely, the spread of certain technologies that previously had not existed in the Japanese islands. Now, Shufu left China in 210 BC, so figure he would have arrived in Japan a few years later, 209 or 208. If you'll remember, all the way back to episode 2, this is also the time when the first era of Japanese history, the Jomon period, characterized by Stone Age semi-nomadic hunter-gatherers, gave way to the first agricultural civilization in Japanese history, that of the Yayoi period. Right around 200 BC, iron and bronze working began to appear in Japan, as did rice agriculture on a large scale. There's also a huge population increase during the Yayoi period, and some archaeological evidence to suggest that some of those migrants were Chinese, based both on DNA and burial practices. Again, this is about as circumstantial as circumstantial gets, but it was enough to convince some people that the theory had merit. In China, the suggestion that Shu Fu landed in Japan started to appear around the 900s AD, and in both countries that became the accepted wisdom. For example, in the 1630s, a distant relative of the Tokugawa family, Tokugawa Yorinobu, was so taken with the story of Shufu and convinced of it that he built a tomb for the wayward Chinese sorcerer in the area where he 
and many others suppose that Shufu landed, modern Mie Prefecture to the southeast of Osaka. Yorinobu ordered a shrine built to Shufu, who is now revered there as one of the kami, in fact, under the name Jofuku, the Japanese way of reading the characters in the name Shufu. He is venerated as a god of agriculture because of his supposed role in bringing that technology to Japan. If you're wondering, the evidence commonly used to support Mie as the landing site is the presence of plants in the area with strong medicinal properties which could potentially be mistaken for some kind of source of well-being, if not immortality. Also, there's a lot of mountains there, so you could definitely see how someone might think the biggest was Mount Penglai. It's called Mount Hora, by the way, in Japanese. So yeah, all that evidence is a bit of a stretch. It does, however, lead to another really excellent theory. You see, the supposed site of Shufu's landing is pretty close to the region of Yamato, where the Japanese imperial family is originally from. There's a very small group of people who think that the rise of the imperial family to prominence is a result of the fact that they had access to technology brought over by Shufu, or even that the family itself is descended from him. There's even less evidence for that crazy theory, but you have to admit, as kooky theories go, it's a pretty good one. There's one big problem, though, with the idea that Shufu's voyage is what kindled the spark of Japanese civilization. Writing. Shufu supposedly brought over all of these incredibly important technologies, but with the exception maybe of agriculture, none of them is as important as the written word. Without writing, it's far more difficult to transmit knowledge or communicate ideas, so why wouldn't Shufu teach his Japanese students, or servants, depending on which version of the story you like, how to read? There's no evidence of anyone in Japan using writing until the 300s AD, over 500 years after Shufu's voyage. So that's enough to cast some doubt on the whole idea. Still, it's hard to get that upset about whether or not the story is accurate. You see, Shufu has lately become something of a symbol of the Japan-China relationship, and memorials to him commemorating 2,000 years of Japan-China friendship have cropped up in both countries. The tomb Tokugawa Yorinobu built for Shufu, for example, now sports a beautiful Chinese-style front gate where memorial services are held for his spirit every August. Of course, there are crazy ultranationalists in both countries who, not to be outdone, have decided to weigh in. On one side, the Chinese side, Shufu is held up as proof of Chinese cultural superiority and of the fact that all Japanese culture is supposedly ultimately derivative from China, and the whole thing just sort of escalating from there. Some people will try to ruin anything, I guess. Still, it's a great story, and I personally find Shufu an endlessly fascinating guy, mostly because I love the idea of someone pulling an elaborate con to steal a fleet from the Emperor of China. Among some, Shufu has become a symbol of the link between Japan and China, and in that sense he works very well. His story dates back to the earliest days of Japanese civilization and to the first Chinese dynasty with any serious claim to national status. There were emperors before the Qin dynasty, but that dynasty set the standard for how powerful the Chinese imperial court could be. Thus, Shufu represents the idea that Japan and China have been bound together literally from the moment of their emergence into the world. It's a nice story and it's why I chose to relate it, even though, again, the evidence is not very good. Because it's such a powerful symbol, I'm willing to forgive some of the more outlandish parts of the whole thing. 
And plus, you just have to respect a man who uses a giant fish monster as an excuse to cover up failing to do his job. That's all for this week. Special thanks to Dan Bensky for donating to support the show. To join him, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for a day in the life of Meiji Japan. <laughs>